long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hey friends, welcome to episode three of the Disaster Queen Podcast. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I am once again so, so excited to be here and even more thrilled and thankful that you are here listening. I have zero chill about this, so thank you so much for being here. It really means the world. This is a dream come true for me. Today, I'm going to take you on a ride back again to the year 1980. It's kind of funny because I didn't even realize it when I was putting this episode together, but it takes place in time about three weeks before our first episode, which was on the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Today, we will be talking about the failed operation to rescue our American hostages that were being held in Tehran, Iran, at the American embassy there. The rescue mission was called Operation Eagle Claw, which I love. I love that name. And unfortunately, it was a huge disaster, which I do not love. You might also hear it referred to as Desert One, which was the landing point in the desert. That was the code name for it. That's the place where it all went wrong. So a lot of people call it Desert One. But the mission's proper name was actually Operation Eagle Claw. So that's how I'll mostly be referring to it. And this disaster took place on the night of April 24th, 1980 and the early morning of April 25th, 1980. I chose this disaster to cover because I think it's been mostly forgotten by history. I myself was a toddler at the time, but the hostage crisis and and their the hostages plight that hasn't been forgotten and it was talked about a lot during my childhood but i never knew about the failed rescue mission until i was an adult so i think the failed rescue mission and and the men that died as well as the heroes that survived have i think been forgotten and i think they deserve to be recognized and so does president jimmy carter and his tireless efforts to free the hostages So I wanted to bring that up and bring that to my listeners and see what you guys think and find out if you knew about it as well. There's a lot of background on this disaster, so let's go ahead and get into it. Okay, so to understand what Operation Eagle Claw was and why it was necessary, first we have to talk about the Iran hostage crisis. I'll try to keep this as brief as possible, but this was a pretty big disaster in its own right, and there's a lot to tell. The gist of it is the Iranians had a revolution in 1978-79 and overthrew their king called the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. The Shah was basically a dictator and he'd been ruling, I think, since the 40s. And though he made great strides in modernizing Iran and turning it into a more Western country, he also allowed his secret police to ruthlessly torture and murder those who opposed him. His economic policies also created a pretty big gap between the rich and the poor and left a lot of Iranians living in poverty while others lived lives of luxury. The only really positive thing I can say about the Shah's rule is that under his regime, Iranian women had rights that they now do not enjoy. 
The Shah was also very cozy with the United States. He gave us good prices on oil, and the United States gave him good prices on weapons, which he bought a lot of. The U.S. also wanted to maintain a friendly relationship with the Shah and Iran because Iran shared a border with the Soviet Union. At that time, the Cold War was raging, and U.S. officials could not imagine anything worse than the Soviets expanding communism into the Middle East, uh, specifically into Iran, which is a country that we did enjoy a good relationship with under the Shah. So to recap, the U.S. loved the Shah, and the Iranians hated him. So when they overthrew him and welcomed in religious leader Ayatollah Khomeini, anti-American sentiment among Iranians was extremely high because the U.S. had been so supportive of the Shah's regime and the Iranians regarded him, I would say correctly, as a tyrant and a murderer. Nevertheless, the U.S.'s official policy was to work with the new Iranian government. They were supporting the new government that was elected after the revolution. They wanted to keep relations with Iran. So they kept the U.S. embassy open despite the violent and bloody Iranian revolution happening in the streets just outside its gates. The embassy compound was huge and it had once housed over a thousand employees. After and during the revolution, the U.S. did downsize the embassy considerably. So there were only 70 or so employees there on November 4th, 1979, when all hell broke loose. Okay, I'm getting a little ahead of myself again. So let's back up about two weeks. On October 22nd, 1979, President Jimmy Carter, who, although he had some troubles in his presidency, I adore. I think he's such a sweet, good-hearted man who's done so much good in his life. Anyway, President Jimmy Carter allowed this exiled Shah of Iran to enter the U.S. to receive treatment for lymphoma cancer in New York City. The Shah was very sick and needed the treatment, and he wasn't able to get it in the few countries that would allow him in. Carter didn't really want to let him in at first, but he was eventually persuaded to on compassionate grounds, although he reportedly said to his advisors, what are you going to tell me when the Iranians take our people hostage? He knew allowing the Shah in would cause trouble, and he was right. I will say another group who was very pro-Shah and letting the Shah into the U.S. were some big, rich, fat cats uh, that were involved with the a previous administration like Henry Kissinger and Rockefeller. So they were pressuring the administration highly and making their opinions known to the American public that the Shah should be let in. So anyway, like I said, Carter eventually let him in on compassionate grounds on October 22nd. As soon as he did this, Iranians went bonkers because they were so mad that Carter had welcomed in the Shah. They didn't care that he was sick. They said it proved that the U.S. was, you know, in cahoots with the Shah and that the embassy was full of spies plotting against Iran's new regime. So Carter was right. It caused a lot of trouble. And on November 4th, 1979, a group of a couple thousand, couple thousand students, college students, calling themselves Muslim students following the imam's line. The imam they're referring to is Ayatollah Khomeini, the new religious leader of Iran. They rioted outside the embassy and eventually broke into the American embassy compound with bolt cutters. They were well armed and the handful of American Marines guarding the embassy were ordered not to shoot. And they couldn't have withstood an onslaught of a couple of thousand students anyway. 
So the students quickly took the 66 employees inside the embassy hostage. They demanded the return of the Shah to Iran to stand trial in exchange for the American diplomats going free. They wanted to put the Shah on trial for his previous crimes against their people. Carter and his team tried to use diplomacy to negotiate the hostages' release for months to no avail. The students had the support of the Ayatollah Khomeini, who, ironically, like the Shah before him, was the law and basically a dictator in Iran. The Iranians would not budge, and diplomacy wasn't working, so out of desperation, a military rescue operation involving Delta Force and other military special forces began to be planned. And that brings us to today's disaster, Operation Eagle Claw. Within a month of the hostages being taken, special forces from all branches of the military living all over the country began getting calls that they would need to meet up and start planning. Not able to tell their families where they were going or why, they packed up, shipped out, and met up together to begin planning Operation Eagle Claw. They first called it Operation Rice Bowl so that if the code name got out, people would think it had something to do with Asia and not with Iran. The plan, which again took months to execute because they first met about it at the end of November and they didn't execute it till the end of April, the plan was multifaceted and extremely complicated. I am not a great geography student, but I do know for a fact that Iran is a landlocked country and it is very, very, very far away from the U.S. And at that time, it was difficult to find regions of the country, that Iran, the country, where our military could get in and out, or I'm sorry, get in and land undetected by the Iranians or the Soviets. So it was a little sticky to get troops into Iran. The planning took months because there were so many logistics to figure out, especially since they couldn't really land planes and helicopters anywhere close to Tehran without being detected. And also, since I mentioned they'd be traveling a great distance, they had to be able to figure out a way to refuel said planes and helicopters and then figure out how to move their 118 troops into Tehran and then how to fly everyone, soldiers and hostages, back out from a location closer to Tehran. Oh, and also there were three hostages being held at Iran's foreign ministry building so that they had to storm that building in addition to, but simultaneously with, the embassy. Whew, it was a lot. Like, if you need to go back and listen to that section again, I totally get it because this was super, super complicated. So many moving parts. So the plan they finally came up with was this. Eight helicopters would fly off the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz, which was in the Gulf of Oman. It's important to note that they decided the minimum number of helicopters they needed was six. So they added two for insurance. We'll come back to that later. If they had less than six helicopters, the mission would need to be aborted. So six was the number added to just in case. But anyway, these helicopters would meet up with three United States Air Force MC-130 planes carrying the 118-man assault force. Their meeting place would be in a dry lake bed in the desert, codenamed Desert One. From there, the helicopters would pick up the troops and fly them to a mountain location to hide out for a whole day. This was called Desert Two. This second location was only 50 miles from Tehran. And under cover of night, the troops would then load up into trucks obtained by CIA, CIA operatives. See, that that was another moving part. They had to have CIA operatives in country before all this happened. And the ones that they originally had were now captives at the American embassy. 
So they had to get some new guys in there. So anyway, they would load up into these trucks obtained by the CIA and be driven to the embassy and foreign ministry where they would attack these two facilities and the Iranian guards and free the hostages. Then they would all be transported in these trucks to an airfield near Tehran, which yet another assault team, so that's another moving part, would have captured in the meantime. So at this air base that they captured, the soldiers and hostages would board planes and be flown to safety in Egypt. Simple, right? (laughs) It's such a complicated plan and really required everything to go right in order to be successful. But from the get-go, almost nothing went right. So let's get into the actual disaster part of this here disaster podcast. Here's how Operation Eagle Claw went from a heroic, top-secret rescue mission to a tragic, deadly, and politically embarrassing disaster. So the first part of the mission actually went really well. All eight helicopters got off the USS Nimitz just fine, and all the C-130 planes carrying troops arrived safely at Desert One, the landing and meeting place. However, almost immediately after the planes arrived while they were still waiting on the helicopters, a passenger bus carrying 43 Iranians came rumbling down the isolated, supposedly desolate and abandoned desert road. The American Special Forces troops, A, could hardly believe it, and B, had to stop the bus, get everyone off, and basically detain these 40-odd Iranians in the middle of the desert so that they wouldn't roll on into town and tell their fellow Iranians that the Americans were there. So now the forces had an additional unexpected task at Desert One, detaining and babysitting 43 Iranian nationals. Unbelievably, just minutes after they stopped the bus, troops were flabbergasted to see yet another vehicle headed their way. Remember, this location had been scouted and surveilled and determined to be desolate and not at all trafficked. But here we go, another vehicle. This time it was a fuel tanker truck, and the driver, who was probably a smuggler, refused to halt upon the soldier's orders. So they basically fired an RPG at the truck and blew it up which resulted in, of course, a massive fire since it was full of fuel. The passenger in the truck was killed, but the driver jumped out of the fuel tanker and got into a smaller truck that was accompanying the tanker, and he and the driver of that vehicle got away. So now the Americans had some witnesses who knew they were there, but since they figured that these guys were smugglers, they doubted they would tell of their presence in the desert because then they would have to explain why they themselves had been there. So they really didn't worry about those guys getting away, and soon that would be the absolute least of their worries. So the next step into Operation Eagle Claw becoming a disaster involved the eight helicopters that were headed to Desert One from the USS Nimitz. About two hours into the flight, one chopper suffered a cracked rotor blade and had to land. They couldn't go on, so they abandoned that helicopter in the desert, and another one of the eight helicopters took on its crew. Then we had seven continuing on, but they ran into a sandstorm called a haboob. Isn't that fun to say? Haboob. It's an enormous, nearly opaque cloud of very fine dust, and one helicopter became disabled when the haboob caused it to have electrical problems, and the pilot no longer had any instruments to fly with. And in those kind of conditions, you have to have your instruments when you can't see. So that helicopter turned around and flew back to clear skies and the USS Nimitz. 
So the mission now had the bare minimum of six helicopters. Not great. The remaining six helicopters finally made it to Desert One, but they were very late. And the operation commanders were pretty aggravated by this. That aggravation turned into devastation when it was soon discovered that one of the helicopters had a malfunctioning hydraulic system and was no longer able to fly. Commanders recommended to President Carter that they abort the mission and Carter authorized the abort. So the mission was called off. In the documentary Desert One, which I highly recommend, Carter and his vice president, Walter Mondale, are both interviewed and they talk very touchingly about how upset they were to have to abort the mission. They really wanted to get those hostages rescued. But at this point, it was hoped that they could get more helicopters or make repairs and try it again the very next night. However, there was more disaster on the horizon. The mission went from disappointing to tragic when one of the helicopters was attempting to back away from the C-130 plane after being refueled. This helicopter's tires had been flattened upon landing, so it couldn't just roll backwards. It had to hover, so it had to get off the ground and hover to back away instead of being able to roll backwards. The whirling of the helicopter's blades kicked up so much dust in the desert that the pilot soon found himself flying blind. He became disoriented, and instead of flying backwards away from the C-130, he flew right into it. Because the C-130 had tons of fuel on board, and the helicopter itself had just been refueled, this caused a huge eruption of fire. Though most of the crewmen in the C-130 plane and the helicopter were able to evacuate unharmed, eight brave Special Forces soldiers lost their lives in this disaster including five U.S. Air Force members in the C-130 plane and three Marines in the helicopter. Several others were also injured and burned, but the intensity and the size of the fire was so huge that Special Forces were not able to stay and even put the fire out as it would have taken too long, and they were already at severe risk of being discovered and their entire force coming under attack and more lives being lost. So the group hurried to evacuate the injured and to get everyone safely out of Iran, leaving the destroyed plane and helicopter, as well as the disabled helicopter with the hydraulic issue and the remains of their eight deceased crew members behind. So this disaster has gone from bad to worse with, it's not just a failed rescue mission, now it's a failed rescue mission with the deaths of eight brave special forces soldiers. When President Carter was told of the tragedy on the phone that same night, Vice President Walter Mondale said in the Desert One documentary that the president turned a pale white. Mondale said it was the worst day in their administration and the worst day of both of their lives. Jimmy Carter said the deaths of these eight servicemen at the end of Operation Eagle Claw was more painful to him than the deaths of his family members that he'd experienced in his life. With the rest of the special forces safely evacuated, Carter went on television at 10 a.m. Eastern the next morning to tell the United States and to tell his countrymen that he had authorized and aborted a mission to rescue the embassy hostages in Iran. He also told his countrymen of the tragic deaths and took full responsibility for all of it, which I just find that really touching. Um, You know, I think there's a lot of people he could have tried to blame stuff on, and he didn't. He owned it. I have great respect for that, as the failure of the mission and the failure of the hostages' release 
pretty much put the nail in the coffin of Carter's hopes for re-election. Ronald Reagan would defeat him in a landslide just a few months later. Once the Iranians found out that Americans had invaded their country in a rescue attempt, they flocked to Desert One to gloat and glory in their enemy's failure. They took the bodies of the dead U.S. servicemen back to Tehran to hand them over to the Red Cross so they could be repatriated, but not before they gruesomely displayed them for all to see. It's extremely gross and disrespectful. The joy over the mission's failure knew no bounds, and they still celebrate it every April 25th to this day in Iran. Don't like that. Not great. At the time, the Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khomeini said that the rescue mission's spectacular failure was proof that God was on Iran's side. Don't love that either. Back in the United States, people were glad that we had tried to rescue the hostages, but of course very sad and stunned at the failure and loss of life. A lot of people were embarrassed and humiliated. It was, a hard, it was hard for the everyday American to grasp just how difficult a rescue mission in Tehran would be if limiting loss of life, especially the hostages' lives, was the goal. We couldn't just simply go over there and drop a bunch of bombs which a lot of people seem to want us to do. Eventually, Iran wanted their money back that the U.S. had frozen in its banks and were finally willing to negotiate the hostages' release. But to make sure and insult President Carter as much as he could, the Ayatollah Khomeini refused to release the hostages until a few minutes after Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president, even though Carter had been awake for three days straight working to secure their release. After 444 days in Iranian captivity, the 52 embassy hostages were finally free. And I should note that they originally took 66 hostages, but the Iranians soon after uh, released a number of women and African-American hostages because they said these were populations that the U.S. oppressed. And so they were releasing them in solidarity with the Iranian people that the Shah had repressed. So that left only 52 embassy hostages. Before I go and wrap this up, I do want to talk about the lives lost in Operation Eagle Claw specifically. In both a recent PBS documentary and HBO documentary about the hostage crisis, former hostages spoke about how sad and touched they were that eight men lost their lives in pursuit of the hostages' freedom. And it's a sacrifice that none of us should forget. I had a hard time, honestly, finding a lot of information on these men, but in the Desert One documentary, you do hear from two of their families, as well as from their special forces colleagues, and it is very touching. I highly recommend you watch it. I watched it on my Canopy app, which is a streaming app that I get through my library. So it's Canopy with a K. Check it out. And it is also available for free with ads on some other streaming platforms. So Google it, friends, and definitely watch it. Okay, the eight special forces soldiers who died in Operation Eagle Claw are... Major Richard Backey, age 33, United States Air Force from Long Beach, California. Major Harold L. Lewis Jr., age 35, United States Air Force from Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Tech Sergeant Joel C. Mayo, age 34, United States Air Force from Harrisville, Michigan. Major Lynn D. McIntosh, age 33, from Valdosta, Georgia, also U.S. Air Force. Captain Charles T. McMillan, age 28, U.S. Air Force from Coryton, Tennessee. Sergeant John D. Harvey, age 21, United States Marine Corps from Roanoke, Virginia. Corporal George N. Holmes, Jr., age 22, United States Marine Corps from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. 
and Staff Sergeant Dewey L. Johnson, age 31, United States Marine Corps from Dublin, Georgia. Because they were so badly burned and were similar in stature and build, coroners could not tell who was Backy, Lewis, or Mayo. They couldn't tell them apart. And so those three are buried in a common grave at Arlington National Cemetery. One of the fellow soldiers in the documentary Desert One teared up when talking about the extra tragedy, he said, of three widows and one coffin. It's so terrible. Again, another reason I recommend you watch this documentary is because a lot of these really tough, hardened special forces guys get so emotional talking about the mission, about its failure, and about their friends that they lost and served with. It's it's very touching. I really, really recommend it. So if you can't find it, email me disasterqueenpod at gmail.com and I will send you a link. Okay. The one beauty to rise from the ashes of Operation Eagle Claw is the Special Operations Warriors Fund, which was started after Eagle Claw specifically to pay for the college educations of the 17 children that Operation Eagle Claw left fatherless. Today, the foundation continues to fund full educations for the children of special operations soldiers who are lost in the line of duty. Major Harold Lewis, who died in Operation Eagle Claw, his son was featured in the Desert One documentary talking about how the fund paid for his entire education from undergrad through medical school and that he is now a surgeon saving lives thanks to the fund. And also Major Lynn D. McIntosh's son was featured saying that he actually went back to school as an adult and finished his college degree and became a teacher. So I think that's a really amazing legacy that this disaster can have is that it's sending kids to college who have lost a special forces parent in the line of duty. Okay, well, that's a pretty cool way to wrap up a really hard story. For more information on this entire hostage crisis from start to finish, I highly recommend the book Guests of the Ayatollah. It's super good. And the documentary Hostages on HBO Max, Desert One that I've already, of course, recommended. And the PBS American Experience documentary Held Hostage, which just came out this year. It's super, super good. The book The Outlier about Jimmy Carter's presidency is pretty great, too, if you want to get more in-depth into the whole Iran hostage crisis and the how we got there and the repercussions that it's still having. All right. Thank you for listening to me, friends. I am so excited. My next episode is going to be very special, not after school special, but pretty special. Um, where for the first time on this podcast, I will tell a disaster story to a special guest and get her reaction as we go through the story. So I'm super excited about it. And I hope that you'll join me and let me know what you think. So I am Jenny, the Disaster Queen. Please do me a favor and rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It will help people find the podcast and help more people enjoy sharing disaster stories together. Please also follow me at Disaster Queen Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have an idea for a story, shoot me an email, disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. That is all for this week. So stay safe, you guys, and don't be a disaster. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. 
Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And DisasterQueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at DisasterQueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at DisasterQueenPod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at DisasterQueenPod on Instagram and at DisasterQPod on Twitter.